welcome to Regulate Tech. Uh, this is our ninth episode of the season with me, Niklas Baird Lumblad, and with me, Richard Allen. So, Richard, um, it's been a quiet week in tech. Not much has happened. Uh, <laughs> no, no, nothing. <laughs> a couple of couple of weeks, I should say, two weeks or so. Um, and one of the one of the things we should come back to at some point is is the announcement that Elon Musk bought a significant share of Twitter. But the perhaps biggest change from a regulatory perspective or a public policy perspective, or the the biggest news was the Digital Markets Act uh, now coming out and. And and really gaining a ton of momentum as to you know its its uh, its launch and the decisions made around it etc. So so why don't we spend some time just trying to situate the Digital Market Act in a larger perspective, trying to think a little bit about what what brought us to this point. So first, I'll have you explain what the DMA or the Digital Markets Act actually is. Yeah. So, so it's um, a piece of legislation that's originated with the European Commission and is now that the big news is, it, is there sort of seems to be broad agreement between the three parties, uh, the European Commission representing the civil service, the European Parliament, a directly elected body, and the European Council, the, the member states, on what the final version of this text should look like. Um, so that, that's the news. Uh, so we now got all the amendments in and they've, they've agreed a, a framework. And the framework, uh, I mean, essentially is trying to fix a lot of the criticisms that have been made towards the the large tech platforms in particular. It's really about the big tech platforms. And it's, it's about a, a feeling in Europe in particular that the market is dominated by US giants primarily. We've had others like TikTok coming into the market more recently, but this this legislation originated really at a time when the major concern was about Google and Facebook in particular, the big American tech giants, uh, and the fact that they were dominant in the market, actually Amazon as well on the e-commerce side, because it's not restricted just to information services, but there's a, a, a feeling that these large American tech companies are dominant, and in particular that they're leveraging their position in the market to gain ever increasing amounts of dominance. Uh, and therefore, the, what the DMA seeks to do is to constrain at its heart to constrain the behaviors of these very large platforms, says what they can and can't do, and will control their ability to grow in future. Um, so again, a lot of it's driven by concerns about past acquisitions by these companies, uh, and it seeks to create a framework in which that will be much harder in future. And I think we also have to point out something other, another thing that's really interesting about this, and that is that, that to a very large degree, this is about competition, as you say, about dominance. And there's already a competition law in place in the European Union. That's right. There's a pretty robust competition framework, and the framework under which most of the competition investigations that we all heard about in the news, the, the Google, uh, Amazon, Facebook, whatever investigations that might have been, have actually been conducted under that general framework, which is a framework that applies equally to the transport sector, to the tech sector, to the pharma sector, etc. So, so the DMA seems to respond to a felt demand that this is not enough. What could they not get out of the yeah. general horizontal competition framework, do you think? Yeah, so, so there's a, a couple of things. So there's one very specific so European feature, which was that there is this uh, uh, mixed enforcement between 
enforcement at the European Union level and enforcement at the member state level. And that's been quite messy for some time. So when a service, you know, when there were concerns about a service acquiring another service, for example, the tests were, you know, was was it present in a certain number of markets? So you had to decide who had effectively jurisdiction. Is it going to be individual member states, competition authorities, or an EU-wide one? So some of it was sort of structural to Europe, just because Europe is a effectively a sort of federation of industry individual countries with individual competition authorities. And so now they, they're they sort of defining what a, uh, they call it a gatekeeper, a European gatekeeper company uh, uh, should be. And there's a sort of a attempt to make a very sort of clear definition about what a, or a, a gatekeeper company in Europe, because a, many yeah. of them will not be European. To exactly, be so <laughs> exactly. So they're trying to find what what a what a a company that uh, is big in European terms, big across Europe, should be defined as. It's making me think of those, um, you know, tours when when bands go on tour and it's like Stockholm, Paris, London, whatever. So it's like how many how many places uh, do you need to be big in, and what what constitutes big? So that's one thing they're tidying up. So it's a structural European thing. But it certainly did cause questions. You and I would have been involved in cases where where you, you know there was a test done when you acquired a service as to which countries it was big in and how big it was in those different countries. Um, the second part of it is is really a kind of major shift in competition law thinking away from a notion that's been uh, let's use the word again, dominant, really, in competition law thinking for the last 30, 40 years, which is that what you're seeking to do is prevent consumer harm. And therefore, when you're looking at whether uh, what a service is doing, you're only looking at the fact of whether or not it's causing consumer harm. And if you can't demonstrate consumer harm, there's no reason to act. Um, and and then what you saw with let's, a lot let's of think into that. So what is what is consumer harm? Because I think we 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 talk about this a lot. But but what would be an example of consumer harm? Say that yeah. that you know there's this large company that engages and it has a dominant position. That's not enough. It should abuse that dominant position in order to then create consumer harm. What's what's an example of that? So we yeah. can really sort of drill down. I mean, in in real short in real shorthand, it's kind of offering worse services for more money. I mean, that's what you're looking at. So are are your services getting worse? Because because you're now dominant, you're lazy, and you can offer worse and worse services all the time, and people are stuck with them. And or are you then saying, well, because my dominant position, I can charge you more and more uh, for those services and you're stuck with it. And so that's the classic model. And that's what you expected in a, in a, you know, if you had a, I don't know, a sort of cartel operating in the in the auto sector, what that cartel would be able to do in sort of classic terms is, is I say, offer shoddier and shoddier vehicles and push the prices up further and further and, and the consumer is harmed. And the challenge you had in the digital sector is that in many cases, look, the price point is free. <laughs> so it's quite hard to say you're pushing the price up if it's it's suddenly free to the end user and often to an advertiser. You know, they were getting better advertising tools for less money than the ones that were being displaced. Um, and the products were getting better and better. They're offering more and more functionality. So, so this sort of classic consumer harm test, it, it was quite difficult to apply when what appears to be happening in the in the online services market is you're getting better and better of services for the same or less money over time and and there's lots so of arguments as to what else you are paying with and all of that but yeah. at, you know just at a baseline cash handing over cash you're not being asked to hand over more cash and the functionality is improving consistently 
Yeah, and, and privacy doesn't factor into the DMI, DMAs so much, I don't think. But the privacy issue, of course, will come up when you say that the, the price point is free. But but it, that is sort of another domain. But but the, what, what, what I hear you saying is super interesting because you're suggesting that there, the, the old theory was that if you were dominant and you abused that dominance to harm consumers, then there would be a need for competition law to, to sort of set you straight. But the new theory seems to be that dominance alone is enough for there to be some new kind of harm. And what is that harm? Exactly. So, so I think the new kind of harm is one that it essentially is going to, um, I think, chill the market over time. So rather than it being an immediate consumer harm, I think it's still some elements of the same notion, but that the consumer harm will happen over a longer period of time. Uh, so it's not the I need to demonstrate it today, but the working assumption is that the dominance itself, as you say, is bad. And the dominance is bad because it will ossify the market. It will drive out the innovation over time. Uh, because, again, let's take an example. If you have a large company uh, uh, that Amazon is one that's sort of been in the frame for this, that if Amazon is able to use its position to to, to start sort of scooping up sectors of the e-commerce market in other words it's got people who are trading through the amazon platform sometimes because amazon's so big uh it can say oh that's a nice bit of business <laughs> uh, because it's visible to amazon it's going through its platform say now i'm going to move into that space and there may be no immediate consumer harm amazon is giving a great deal you know to the customers uh, as good a deal as the previous independent vendor was giving but over time once those independent vendors have gone out of the market, there will be a long-term negative effect because, like, who else, who's going to bother? Who's going to bother creating a new, you know, product line or e-commerce line if you know that in a couple of years, if you're successful, Amazon's just going to come and take it over uh, because because that's what they do. And so there's a lot of that sort of thing. And you could argue similarly in the information services. You know, who's going to bother creating a a new video service if you know, Google with all its resources and Meta with all their resources are, are just going to take in, you know, move into your video service space, whatever new format you've come up with. They'll buy you, roll it into theirs, or they'll just copy it. So, so you could argue then that what we've done is we've moved from a world in which you couldn't just point to dominance. You had to point to an abuse of that dominance that led to consumer harm to a world in which dominance alone is seen to be a dampener on innovation to a degree such that it's actually become a social harm, not an individual consumer harm anymore. And that's that's sort of the, the overall picture that you're painting. But that that seems to beg another question, which is, if this is true for tech, there has to be something specific about the tech industry that makes it true. Otherwise, they would just have updated the regular competition framework, right? If they suddenly came to think that, okay, good, dominance alone is grounds for, for concern and we should make sure that there is no dominant company or at least that dominant companies are curtailed in the possible ways in which they can grow and act. If if that was the theory, then then why shouldn't that hold for a transport company or a pharma company? But but they've decided to lift this out as what what you sometimes call like a, a lex specialis, a special law for tech. Why is that? What is it yeah. about tech that makes this special? Yeah, so I think it's the fact that it's um, kind of hard to see it coming, and that there are particular factors like network effects is the is the one again that's often cited that there's there's an ability to to um, 
uh, gain a particular advantage by having a large network that that is kind of impossible for someone else to replicate unless you know that you you can't sort of magic up a large network so so somebody who's got a large network of users who buys a smaller service that smaller service is immediately in much much more capable than the smaller service that stays independent because they can plug into the network effect and that's that can be true in other sectors as well you can imagine in in sectors like transport and and i think some of the the considerations are there as well that if you if you buy a smaller operator and you roll that smaller operator into a bigger operator that's got a huge amount of infrastructure they will gain an advantage but I think in tech, it's harder to see it coming quite often. Uh, that's part of the issue. I think with physical infrastructure and physical businesses, it's easier to see it coming. Uh, and, and again, the speed at which all of this happens is, is incredible. So uh, having worked at Meta, it's obvious that you know t- two of the acquisitions that are, I think, controversial now and have driven the European Union to, to to construct this law are the acquisitions that Facebook made of Instagram and then WhatsApp, and and these were both companies. But both Instagram and WhatsApp had pretty large networks before they were that, acquired, did they not? Exactly, they had pretty large networks of their own, but they were very very small companies. I mean, with a few dozen employees, and so again, in in your classic sort of. Uh, uh, um, competition sort of inquiry land when you look at it and you say look here's a company of you know 10,000 employees it's buying a 30 employee company over here (laughs) that's not normally the thing that kind of rings big alarm bells now this 30 employee company if it's whatsapp already has like a huge user base uh that they're able then to to bring in um and again, if you look at those acquisitions, there was, there was, I think, there's a sort of, I was going to say, what would we call it? It's not buyer's regret, it's regulator's regret. <laughs> there was a certain amount of regulator's regret that they hadn't intervened uh, at the time those acquisitions were made. And I think they'd say they missed two things. What One is, yeah, in a sense, by by underestimating how significant the acquisitions were because it was a relatively small company being uh, uh, brought in. And that they underestimated the extent to which the integration of those new networks into the the sort of uh, purchasers network, um, the extent to which that could take place and, and create incredible uh, value and and more, uh, in their terms, dominance over the marketplace. So the extent to which, you know, Meta was able to integrate its advertising services with Instagram, for example, you know, now they have this massive you know, uh, uh, advertising powerhouse across those two very, very large platforms. And again, you know, that wasn't obvious when they bought it. Uh, Instagram was not making money as a big advertising platform. Uh, and I think, again, the regulators sort of missed the sense that when Meta or when Facebook at that time bought Instagram, that was going to lead to significant change in the advertising market. But arguably the same for Google and DoubleClick or Google and YouTube, where, you know, the the real value has come from uh, uh, pulling together all of the elements of these different services and, and regulators did not see that at the time. And now I think they want to say, look, now we know that's there and now we know it's a phenomenon. Now we know in digital world, you know, purchases of relatively small companies can lead to a, a significant shift in the market. We want to give ourselves the tool to have more control over it. 
So, so we we should separate this out. I think for those listeners who are still are still new to the mysteries of competition, there's one there's one aspect of this that that you have sort of highlighted really well, which is the question of acquisitions. When should a company be allowed to buy another company? And you know, the test for that is that it shouldn't distort the market in any way. If there are two really large companies competing on a market, say that there's the the red car company and the blue car company, allowing the red car company to then buy the blue car company will reduce consumer choice. There will not be as much choice for consumers because they can just buy the red car company car. There is nothing else. And that's an example of consumer harm. So that's that's one test. But what you're saying now is that, that instead of just looking at how much a market is consolidated by an acquisition, there are a lot of other parameters that are coming into the equation now. Uh, one of them is, you know, how many users uh, are actually brought into the fold of the acquiring company. Another is, as you pointed out, is there um, is there massive network effects at play here that in some way um, help the acquiring company? But then there is also this this notion, I think, about data. Data yes. being a part of the competitive advantage. How does that work? Because that's another test that's being brought up, right? Yes, and again, most legislation sort of uh, is a response to a particular scenario that that people cook cried foul on, and and again on the data combining, you can there are various elements, but the, the two big cases are that um, Google at a certain point uh, issued a change to its terms of service, saying, look, if you're using Google services that includes YouTube and other Google services, we essentially are going to use all of that data. Um, some opt-outs that you were there, Nicholas, you'll know there are some sort of opt-outs, but the basic yeah. model is, look, all of the data used by all of the pool of Google services is potentially available for us to run our advertising model and do better targeted advertising. And that's we think that's reasonable, but we're kind of at, we're give, giving ourselves permission to use all of that data. Again, Facebook's done it with Instagram, a little bit less with WhatsApp because because the WhatsApp content is encrypted. But again, there's some things like the identifiers of accounts, the phone numbers and stuff where, again, Facebook has, through updates to its terms of service, said, look, we can use any of that data potentially. Uh, and, and again, that's seen as creating, I think, well, it's partly seen as creating a sort of unfair advantage uh, that they can do that. And it's seen also as overriding, to an extent, the rights of the of the data subject, the users. And so one of the things that's a core part of the proposal uh, is a notion that in order to do that kind of cross-service work within the same group, the same company group, if you want to to use data across services, you've got to get clear, explicit consent from individuals to that. So in other words, concrete terms, uh, Google will have to say to YouTube users, you know, do you consent to your data being used uh, for adverts that's shown on Google search and vice versa? And in the meta family, Instagram users and Facebook users will have to be given a choice and be asked to consent uh, for data to be used across the two platforms. And, and again, similarly, that will apply in future. If, you know, uh, the TikTok family has other services, again, TikTok would have to get explicit consent before it could use that data on other services that their their uh, parent company were to offer to people. So that notion is, is one, I say it's partly driven by data protection concerns, but also it's in competition law because the sense is, again, this unfairness sense that uh, um, the the individual uh, service that's out there that's trying to do do something interesting is always going to be outgunned 
particularly in the online advertising market, by services that can combine data across many multi-billion user platforms. So one part of the way that competition law is changing is that specifically for the tech sector, because of network effects, because of data effects, what's happening is that there are limits being introduced on acquisitions and sort of tests for acquisitions that go way beyond what you would find in other sectors. And it is funny, by the way, because the way you describe a very small company having a really large competitive effect, it makes me think of the pharma industry, where that certainly can be true, where a small research company that comes up with a unique molecule or a, a sort of cure for cancer, to take the obvious example, if acquired, could significantly affect the market uh, conditions for the rest of the players on that market. So it might not be that different across different markets, but tech has been um, has been in the limelight for so long that I think that that's, that's something that's uh, affected the situation. The other thing, if we sort of move away from acquisitions for a moment, the other thing is that there's ha- it seems to me there's been this sense that when you apply the old competition framework, it was too little too late. Yes. And that it was too too much exposed, not enough ex ante, too much after the fact. Talk about yeah. that. Yeah, that's, that is a significant shift. So this notion of the gatekeeper, so the gatekeepers are defined as quite large companies. There's, there's been backwards and forwards about how how much, how big you have to be in order to be defined as a gatekeeper. And and we have to be candid and say that with some suspicion that the, the line is drawn in order to exclude some European companies uh, that may or may not have lobbied in their favor you know within the debate i don't know who knows like as if that kind of business would go on anyway they've that en- happened that seems weird yes yeah 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 <laughs> they, they've ended they've ended up with a with a number uh so i think the original proposal was a company that's that has uh, six and a half billion euros of annual revenue and a market cap of 65 billion and i think we're now on the final version i think people might correct us is uh it's seven and a half billion euros of annual revenue and a market cap of of um, 75 uh, billion euros so if you're in that bucket in particular and there's a user requirement too there's a user requirement yeah, 40, 45 million i think month, monthly end end users um and so, at so least ten thousand business, business users, users yeah. so there, there's like yeah exactly there's a sort of formula for for deciding you're in that bucket but if you're in that bucket yes there's going to be a lot of uh, um sort of prior restraint i guess that's the best way to describe it that that uh, uh it's not just going to be a question of of you know um watching what you do as you grow and that people making complaints and 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 after the event uh, uh criticizing you and we've seen that we've seen that in tech a lot of times and and you're right the criticism is that look somebody's done something bad they've i know um there's the google search one which i know you're familiar with where the accusation of some people was they've been excluded from unfairly from google search uh, results they complain that they're excluded unfairly and the the wheels start churning and a year or two later <laughs> google gets a big fine and get told you treated them unfairly but from them as a business like those two years were were you know fatal in the sense to, to often to their interests and so the suggestion is no now we want to shift from that to say look if you're one of those big companies and google search would be an example we're going to set a set of constraints on what you can or cannot do in order to prevent from their perspective the anti-competitive behavior in the first place ex ante prevention as opposed to waiting for the bad thing to happen and then come in ex post and trying to deal with that so there are this, there are this bunch of, of different rules and they affect things like um uh, as well things like uh, payment services and you know the, the stuff again 
all of this comes from complaints that people have made. People would be aware of the complaints of paying uh, money to to uh, app app stores and things like that. And there's been a long running set of uh, uh, disputes around paying money to app stores. Uh, again, you can see in the, a response to this in this regulation where it is intending to to ensure that uh, people in these gatekeeper positions. Um, are constrained in the way in which they can do business with others. They're not just free anymore to set the pricing that they want to set and to deal with people in the way they want to deal with them. And so the the notion of a gatekeeper is interesting. The choice of words here matters, right? Because the, the thought is that you have this company that has grown so large as to essentially be uh, an entry point to the overall digital market. That that assumes that this market is is fairly mature, right? That we're yes. in a state now where you you're not going to see a whole lot of new Facebooks. Or and one way to formulate this is that that the entire legislation operates under the hypothesis that there is not going to be. If you look into twenty thirty five, the top ten internet companies are roughly going to be the same, right? So I think partly, I mean, one of the uh, sort of potential outcomes, and and again, I, I think it's maybe partly intentional. If if you assume this is a piece of pro innovation legislation, the, I think one of the intended outcomes is to kind of hobble the giant companies to a certain extent, precisely in order so that others can come up from the outside and grow, and then maybe in turn themselves become gatekeepers. So there is a, I think that is part of the logic. Now the extent to which that will happen is is really hard to predict. I mean, if, if again, if we look back in time, Microsoft was the big beast and there was a whole series of competition cases. They didn't, they didn't rewrite the law for Microsoft, but they, there were a number of competition cases around things like me, media players and, and uh, 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 web browsers and stuff like that that were kind of, I think, intended to, to try and level the playing field. But curiously, they were intended to level the playing field around a world in which people were buying uh, office and operating system software and installing on PCs. And the people that came up on the outside and, and really dealt a blow to this were people like Google coming up with completely different models or Apple coming up with a, you know, there's a hardware company and there's a cloud-based software company. And so, I, again, qu- question, you know, if this does have its intended effect, which is to slow down and and make life more difficult for these big services as they are today, is that the right target? Um, uh, you know, will others grow into that space, or actually, are the things that we should be watching out for that are going to provide the competition operating in a completely different world? They're not like these services at all. Um, and there's lots of you know options. That. There's distributed services. There's there's uh, uh, you know services based on different forms of technology um, from the ones that these these platforms use. There's a whole bunch of potential uh, spaces for competition that don't necessarily involve somebody growing to be the next Google or Facebook. Right. And the, so it's the assumption the assumption that I'm trying to tease out here is that there, there are two ways to think about competition. One is to think, or many ways to it, but at least two. One is to say that there's competition on a market, right? There's competition on the shoe market. We make shoes, I make better shoes than you. And if you buy too many shoe stores and refuse to sell my shoes, then we have a competition issue. It's competition on a market. And the other, the other perspective on this is competition about the market, where you sell shoes and I sell, you know, these super duper cool plastic spray-ons that last for <laughs> two weeks 
and keep your feet um, feet dry and warm. And so it's a very different way of solving the same kind of problem that a market is looking for. So competition about a market is different. These rules seem to assume that we've moved into a phase in digital where it's going to be competition on a market and the established market is, is in need of being regulated. But very much of the tech discussion, at least in, in, in California, seems to be about this thing, Web3, where, yes. where the idea is that you have a decentralized, often blockchain-based, for example, system that is, is organized in such a different way that it would really be an example of competition about a market rather than competition on a market. And to, to your earlier point about Microsoft, they seem to have done quite well. Yes. Um, <laughs> Right. Yes, yeah, yeah, the so, net result was not to change Microsoft's position in doing what they did. Uh, you know, the PC market is still dominated. Well, the 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 PC uh, the the Microsoft P, Microsoft still dominates the classic component based PC market as opposed to the Apple. Uh, proprietary uh, kind of device market. So that sort of hasn't fundamentally changed. But the competition, yes, came from different angles. The competition has come from the fact that people are using phones. So so Microsoft's share of the total market is smaller, uh, not because it's been pushed out of its core markets, but because people have grown into other markets, to your point, uh, that, you know, they're buying spray-on shoes. Microsoft still dominates the the traditional shoe market, as it were, but people are now buying the spray-on shoes or going barefoot. Yes. You know, they're doing something completely different. Um, so, so yes, yeah, so it's it's hard to tell whether that's going to be the case here. You know, the market is still evolving quite rapidly, and as you say there's lots of excitement about alternatives. Again, but the, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I yeah. just this thing is a sort of question of whether the excitement about the alternatives is in part driven by the fact that it's kind of harder to break into and make money from from the, the classic web 2.0 uh, system so it may be that you know a lot of that sort of entrepreneurial innovative drive um, assuming that it is you know motivated by people who want to do something uh, unique special big that shows they're clever well yeah if you go you know going to work for a facebook or a google these days is not unique big clever uh in many cases so you are you know you've been driven into trying to to develop other technologies and again that's a dynamic well, that i think always exists and it, that's uh, and it's one that has been specific to the tech market you could tease that out but then you can say what you're actually saying is that what drives innovation which is the core value that we're trying to protect here is the strong incumbency of a company that uses uh, last generation's technology. And then a lot of challengers seeing that strong incumbency and deciding, I will not go down that path. I will go down this other path instead and, and develop the spray-on shoes. But, but the, the consequence of that argument, if you draw it out, seems to be that if you're weakening the incumbency and allowing people to go the same path as the incumbents have gone, then you would be slowing down the pace of innovation because the incumbency will not be perceived as so oppressive as to generate that innovative drive with a new entrance. So you could end up having a very opposite result to what the act is actually set out to do, if I, if I follow your reasoning. Yeah, yeah. So, so you might in terms of, yes, so it, it, um, but again, there's, you know, there's the leading edge or bleeding edge innovation, which creates the brand new stuff. 
And then there are a bunch of innovative services that work on top of those platforms. And and let's take take an example, which I know has come up in these discussions, something like Spotify. You know, Spotify is an innovative service that's dependent on, on the mobile phone uh, platforms and dependent on the Play Stores and so on. Um, it's arguably not, you know, the bleeding edge innovations around streaming when are not what Spotify's developed. Spotify's developed the commercial uh, model that you need to make that technology work at scale and and deliver a, a product, um, but it's the Spotify's I think that most benefit from the DMA. Uh, not it's not mm. the Napsters, <laughs> as it were. And yes, there's a question as to whether or not you know you you will um, certainly. I think you will help uh, those companies that are de- dependent on the largest platforms for distribution, and so this is the sort of second tier of companies coming into the market. But that will not necessarily. That's a different. Uh, good uh, that that creates a more competitive market. For example, in music, you can have you know twenty different Spotify's who can all compete with Google Music now uh, better or Apple Music better. You hope because of DMA and and that might be a more vibrant market for the the music companies. But that's not brand yeah. new innovation. Yeah. No, and, and what you what you end up describing here is super interesting, and it, and some of the genealogical inspiration to the DMA came from, uh, from at least some of it came from French supermarket uh, legislation, where the idea was that a supermarket shouldn't be allowed to decide that it will just put its own brand of breakfast cereal on the shelves. It should sort of allow for all kinds of breakfast cereal, and it has to give notice before it takes one brand down or exposes it less to the consumer. Sort of this idea of of tech companies as supermarkets uh, carrying all of these different brands. But what you then get, of course, is incremental innovation only. You get a new taste in breakfast cereal. You don't get an entirely new diet for breakfasts or you yes. know, the eight-hour fasting that seems so popular these days or whatever yeah. that might be. So so there's, there is a question here, um, and I, I, I like you teasing this up because there's a question here about what kind of innovation is promoted by something like this is it incremental innovation and if you really want the 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 innovation that we have learned not to call disruptive but the more sort of the more the more uh, massive kind of innovative step if you want faster innovation then you should allow the incumbency to grow so strong as to really bring forth a reaction from the innovators i, I like that it's sort of a, an interesting dilemma i wonder if that has gone into the discussion much yeah i, I think that that second sort of notion that that um you know, if, if there is a problem with incumbency and there is no consumer harm happening, then let it ride uh, because then you'll get the real innovation. The edges. I think that's probably has been stronger, at least in the US. There have been, I think, more advocates for that, although it's changed with the Biden administration and and the people who are now sort of working on policy for the Biden administration, I think, are much more aligned with the EU view. And one of the big questions about the DMA is, the extent to which it will get rolled over into the US and so into these tech giants home market effectively. Um, But I think, yes, the the notion that uh, incumbency that does not cause consumer harm can be a good thing, uh, I think has actually been quite strong. And I think the tech companies have often argued for it themselves. That's often been their position. But there's also had quite a lot of support from from economists and others who, who are more in that classic... Uh, I'm going to describe it that way. That classic uh, uh, competition school where you where you're really only focused on consumer harm. If if there was incumbency and consumer harm, of course you're going to act. Um, but incumbency without consumer harm is seen as 
Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah, might not like it, but uh, out there in the sticks, somebody's going to be coming up, you know, with something really creative now to try and remove the incumbent. And it's okay to wait for that because there's no consumer harm in the interim. Um, and that's right. where I think EU's moved on from that. Now we said no, no, you know, the heart, the harm is is the harm is there in the size is kind of inherent in the size and therefore must be dealt with. The theory of comp- on competition as punctuated equilibria, where you have sort of equilibria of relative market dominance of very few players under a power law structure, and then that's disrupted by an entirely new technology or model, and then you end up in a new equilibria after a while. And, and what really happens is not that you get linear competition, where there is always a lot of small companies competing all the time, but you actually have these steps or stages of equilibria that move into the future. That's... It's, and there's a lot of there's a lot of research on this stuff uh, that that seems to suggest that it's not that clear cut. So so let's let's go back to the DMA and and uh, start to trace some of the the other things. And so let's talk about self preferencing. What's that? Yeah, I mean again, that's the notion. You, I think you described it with the supermarkets <laughs> effectively, which is where you you uh, put your goods out first. And again, this was a Google. Um, there were Google cases around this when there of uh, when 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 in the search results in the in the promotional spaces around a set of search results you know are you pointing people to your own products uh, as opposed to pointing to people to a fair uh, selection of products uh, and it actually even goes even further back it goes back obviously to microsoft and microsoft put microsoft uh, uh, media player on their windows computers and they put internet explorer on and those were the the choices you had and microsoft would say no it's competitive because people can install Netscape, or they can install Real Player, but they self-preference because the ones you got when you bought the computer were, for most people, going to be the ones you stuck with. And again, the the competition case is focused on saying no. You've got to offer people a choice up front. Uh, it's like a, like a carousel of you know. Uh, I think they actually went that far, didn't they? And some of them say it had to be a carousel yeah, yeah. of Without randomly ordered randomly ordered browsers and you needed to be given that in order uh, uh, every time you installed a new computer so it's that sort of notion and again you can see how that also works for online services where where um uh, as i say you go and do a search result for email uh system i want to get a new email system and if google puts gmail at the top uh, and only Gmail is ever allowed to be, you know, in that particular location, then that's where you start to have a case for self-preferencing. You say, look, you know, what about other email providers? They should be able to have an equal shout at it, at getting in that space. Um, and you can see why any business would want to do it. And actually, for most, you know, in, in most normal businesses, the idea that you can kind of cross-sell your own products is is perfectly fine. But again, when you're seen to be so dominant in the market they keep using that language the tech companies will hate it but the perception is that they're dominant then that self-preferencing is a way of essentially extending your dominance into other adjacent markets because you're always directing people to your products rather than other people's products and and then it leads to an interesting question though because it suggests that they're they're i mean the the mental model that you get of this is that there are five products and your company's product is number four in terms of quality and reach and functionality but you're putting that up front because that's your product and you want to cross sell but what if your product is actually the better one how do you deal with that 
Uh, uh, well, I suspect that's the argument that most companies will use most of the time, that we're simply offering people the best. But I think what they're increasingly going to have to do is, dem- is demonstrate that objective criteria being applied. Uh, and so, again, you could imagine if somebody wants to say, look, the way that I'm you know, ordering or positioning something is on the basis of user feedback. And the user feedback, you know, has been genuinely unfairly collected. And that's what I've chosen to reflect. I think, you know, that may be acceptable. So, but I think we're increasingly moving into a world where the assumption is you're the bad guy. I think being a gatekeeper means basically default bad guy. <laughs> so, so we're assuming you're a bad guy because you're a gatekeeper. And, uh, and we're going to give you a whole set of sort of ex-ante obligations, but we're also going to constantly make you prove your innocence. Every time you do something, you're going to have to demonstrate why it's innocent. And, and that's where the conversations between, you know, uh, companies and regulators will go. The, the UK is now outside of the EU framework, so it's not going to be involved in the DMA, but they're setting up their own digital markets unit. And again, the way that's sort of described is it's going to be a sort of constant, you know, a thorn in the side of the large companies asking them to justify why they've made choices they've made and they're going to have to use data to do that. You just imagine this world where, uh, um, and people may not be aware if they've not been involved in this, but competition authorities have incredible powers of, of access to information held by uh, companies generally, you know, and they're quite serious powers, as in you go to prison if you if you don't provide the information. And, and again, so you can imagine a world in which those powers existing powers are going to be rolled over they're going to be used much more to say look prove your innocence uh so yes if you want to say i'm not self-preferencing i've my my product happened to come out top for some objective reason that's not going to be taken at face value that's going to be dug into and you're going to have to produce a huge amount of data to demonstrate why you made that choice or created the system that way so we end up in a situation where the burden of evidence has been shifted over to those that are deemed to be gatekeepers, and they will then have to to uh, comply or explain, uh, as it sometimes is put. And and that that compliance. Who? So one of the other things that is always really interesting when you're looking at new legislation is to figure out who's going to actually enforce this because the rules are broad many of the concepts are still uh have not settled entirely in terms of what they mean etc and so who's the main enforcer of the dma is it is it the member states or where does that land so i think it's still going to be a bit of both uh and and uh one of the areas i think that's still being debated between the european commission and the european council exactly how the 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 power between the european commission as the competition enforcer and individual member states, competition authorities, how that should I understand play out. the commission will be the, the primary enforcer, at least, as far as I... I think I, they'll I, be the... Yes, yes. Exactly. But it, I think the point of dispute is whether the commission can override any national competition authorities' decisions. Um, so, uh, again, it's that sort of bounce of power between the two. And, and you, it's not unique to this area. It's similarly sort of found in data protection law, although data protection law has a more, I guess, a sort of more... Um, uh, 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 sort of explicit framework for uh, creating the balance between uh, the well, so the individual member state data protection authorities are the powers in the land, but they have a framework for deciding how to share responsibility for policing particular companies, and there is a framework for sort of consolidating that. So it's not unique that you have to do this, but you're clearly in competition law. You've you've got both a very very powerful authority at the EU level. And you've got powerful authorities at individual member state level. And there may be, 
you know, instances where the interests of the member state or the desire of the member state varies from the desire of the European Commission. Uh, and, and this has happened again, not just in this area. There have been instances where uh, um, member states have been quite upset because, for example, mergers of national champions that the local competition authority thought were absolutely fine, not for political reasons at all, but were absolutely fine. And it's the European Commission that's kind of stepped in and said, you're not allowed to do that merger. So, you, you know, it's not Un, un, unimaginable that there will be times of tension and that how we resolve those tensions I think is one of the open questions they're still trying to finalize. And I, I also think it's worthwhile saying that the old competition framework still applies so there can yes. be findings or investigation under that framework in which there is still the national competency and the question of whether or not this is a European Commission competency. But there will be a really interesting tension there with the DMA where the European Commission is set out to be almost a sole enforcer of the legislation or regulation in this case. So it means that for the Commission, it will be advantageous to say that a particular case should be looked at under the rules of the DMA because that gives them uh, a much stronger argument for jurisdiction and for solving the case than having it end up yeah. in, in the old competition framework. So so we now have levels of competitive frameworks that, and it's not unique, right? Because you have a lot of this in, for example, the telco industry yeah. as well. They're also operating under this this sort of lex specialis on top of the competition uh, framework. So so that will be, and, and it puts the commission in a, in a very powerful position. It also gets to, to have what is called a regulatory dialogue with the gatekeepers, uh, <laughs> which, yeah. I, which I think is essentially what you described, what you said, that they have these very strong powers of, of discovery, that they can come in, they can ask for all kinds of things. This is, this is the moment at which the, it's possible to ask for the algorithm, the, the sort of old uh, yeah. golden, the, the, sort of the, the holy grail of, of a lot of tech policy has been, show me the algorithm. Uh, this is the point at which the commission is getting close to a point where it can do exactly that, ask to see the algorithm. And then, of course, I think in terms of a shift or a change, there's a shift and a change in rules, but there's also, I think, a super interesting shift over to the commission as perhaps the most globally powerful regulator when it comes to competition anywhere in the world, even more uh, powerful than the American regulators. Sorry, I think so. At least they have huge so, power. Yeah, and um, and one area. I mean, just uh, before we leave this, I'm just just worth flagging has a, has attracted attention. But where the commission will have a very particular role is that within the proposals, there is a, uh, um, a requirement on large messaging platforms to create interoperability. Uh-huh. Uh, and that, you know, kind of attracted attention for lots and lots of, of reasons. But that that placed them in a curious position. If the other measures essentially are sort of economic measures, you know, t- tell me how, uh, tell me what you're doing. You know, I want to I want to tell you how to structure this market, how to set your your economic terms and conditions. There are a couple of areas where it gets super technical, and and this issue of messaging interoperability is supremely technical, um, and, and that's going to be fascinating to see how they handle that. Yeah, 
And it's and 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 I think the self-preferencing one is also going to be very technical. So to help the commission, they're going to set up what I understand is both a what they call a high-level group, which is which is uh, European for experts, I think, and there will be an advisory committee. It will be really interesting to see what the makeup of these groups are, and to what degree um, uh, they will be instrumental in the commission's understanding of of the DMA implementation. Um, and of course, if you don't do what the commission says, there are consequences. And oh, what yes. are the consequences? <laughs> uh, uh, huge fines of, uh, of uh, a percentage of your uh, uh, global annual revenue. Up to twenty percent yes. if you're a repeat if you're a repeat offender. Ten yeah. percent if you're if you're just occasionally offending. Yeah. 10% seems to be, it's gone up during our time. It used to be 5% back in the good old days, isn't it, for most laws? And it's kind of gone up to 10%. And now, I mean, it's, it is one of those things, just as a politician, it kind of always has to ratchet up. It's very, you know, I'd, uh, it'd be fascinating to see someone bring in a proposal where they said, no, no, we think it's reasonable only to find 2% of a, uh, a company's global annual revenue. But I kind of fear that say that's a sort of one-way ratchet <laughs> every time there's a legislative proposal. Um, uh, politicians take as their baseline the the maximum fine level from the previous proposal, um, so it's going to keep keep going up. I think. Yes, and and uh, if if it, if it does keep going up, there is going to be a point at which this is a substantial part of the European Union budget. I actually don't know what happens with a fine if it comes in to the European. <laughs> union do you yeah i don't actually, yeah i don't know that because there's a very interesting again an interesting dynamic that um we've seen with other regulators that that where a regulator um uh, benefits directly from levying fines clearly that creates an incentive for them to levy more fines um in most systems the 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 fine revenue i think will go to general general government coffers and so I suspect here it would be general government coffers. You should, you should know because Google's paid a lot of money to the European Commission over the years. Where did that money go? I, I only know it goes into escrow whilst you're whilst you're sort of examining the issue in court. I, right. I'm not quite sure where the where the end thing is, but we should. That's something that we should look into. It would be interesting to to figure that out. So yeah. so let's let's see if we can bring bring all the different threads together. What we've said is that the DMA, and we've we've sort of not talked in depth about the DMA and its specific provisions, but more trying to trace the outline of its history, you know, how a, how an increasing um, unease with the fact that there were really, really large companies in the tech sector led to a shift in the theory of competition from one that focused on consumer choice or consumer harm to one that focused more on, on, on the idea of, of social harm or innovation, uh, chilling innovation in different ways. And how dominance itself became more and more seen as something that was harmful to the market. Um, and from that then came the notion that we should test both acquisitions more carefully and not just look at what happens to market dynamics, but look at data, look at network effects, look at different other kinds of advantages that an acquisition can bring, as well as define the behavior of these already large companies by defining them as gatekeepers and then restraining them from doing a, a number of different things, self-preferencing or stopping other services from interoperating with them, etc. So, so there's a, 
there's a there's the development of a whole extra body of legislation on top of the already existing competition framework that now needs to be put into force what how if you look at this if you sort of if you make a prediction in say we're looking back in 10 years how successful and what by what criteria really would you judge the success of the DMA in 10 years from now how, what's the if if we want to understand, I mean, we can talk about this legislation all we want, and we can sort of have questions about it. We can say there are some things that are really good, some things that are 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 more problematic. But in ten years, looking back, is ten years enough? What yeah. what? How would you judge it? Uh, I mean, I think so, so. Based on the Microsoft example, we may need maybe need twenty years uh, to really sort of see this whole, whole thing play out. But but I would have said, I said that the the judgment really needs to be on how um, good the offers are that the consumer gets i mean if you know that's the point of it the the point of it the point of the legislation is to make it so that people get better and cheaper services that they are comfortable with not not you know it's not all uh, uh cost but better cheaper more privacy friendly uh, or, or more in line with their expectations at least put it that way that, that that's what you're looking for um and that, I think, should be the ultimate test. So it really is sort of consumer satisfaction with what they're being offered, assuming they're a, a knowledgeable consumer who's not being hoodwinked uh, and does understand how the market works. But if if the consumers in general say, look, we, we are really happy with the digital offers that we've got, uh, that's what you want. And then the question is, are they happier because of this intervention than they would have been otherwise? And there, I think the jury is out. You know, I don't. I think it is hard uh, to, to sort of say with certainty that would be the case. Again, look at the counterfactual. You know, how would the world have been if uh, Instagram, WhatsApp, Facebook, YouTube, Google, Gmail, DoubleClick, all of these things had been independent entities? Uh, you know, how would we be today if those were all independent entities as opposed to gathered into conglomerates effectively? And you could probably argue that both ways. You could probably construct quite a good argument to say they would all have, you know, independently got much better uh, than they have done in the conglomerate structure. But equally, you and I both know there are certain things that those services did that that they would have really struggled to do um, if they'd only been still, you know, if Instagram had been a company of 20-odd people trying to grow its own way uh, up to scale or WhatsApp had been a company of 30-odd people or YouTube had been still a bunch of, as I understand it, dope-smoking hippies in a garage somewhere, you know, trying to trying to build their service <laughs> up. So, so you you know, that's the, that's the sort of uh, counterfactual. Um, we're now creating a world in which in the future that the clear intent of this is that, that there are more independent services and where services are in a conglomerate, they have to act more independently. Uh, and so we're going to find out big experiment. Um, but that's the test. Are consumers happier and uh, question, uh, it, you know, do conglomerates make consumers happy in a true sense? Again, not hoodwinking and keep, keep repeating that, but in a true sense, are they getting better and cheaper services that they, they really are comfortable with? in the conglomerate structure versus the independence and or uh, elements of a conglomerate acting more independently. It's a very fair test, but do you think that's the test that everyone has in mind? I I tend to think that more people have this sort of uh, 
where in the ranking of the 100 largest companies are the gatekeepers in 10, 15, 20 years test in mind? Where, where you said this earlier that there's this sense of wanting to rein in or in different ways uh, hobble the, the, the now existing market leaders. Isn't, I think at least some kind of test along those lines also seems to be implicit in this, that there must be some turnover in that. If, if we have exactly the same list yeah. with small adjustments of the top 100 companies in the world uh, as we have today, will the DMA then, can you then reasonably say that the DMA has been successful? Yeah, and I, and I think that structure will change, but not, again, the Microsoft example is a good one. Microsoft is still there, <laughs> but other companies, other giants have grown up around them. Um, so I think that's probably the most likely outcome. It's not that the, the giants will disappear, but others will grow up around them, and therefore they're not they're not sticking out so much. I think certainly from a European perspective, there's a there's a, a hope, a desperation almost that some of those uh, uh, large companies in future should be European based. So there's a real you know sense of frustration that that uh, the the really big companies in the digital space generally are not European. The biggest ones are not European. So I think, again, a successful sort of market structure outcome might be that we move from whatever the GAFA, GAFAM, or if TikToker is that GAFAT, or, we, you know, we move from this sort of literally sort of handful uh, of um, companies. So it's sort of, it's tend to be, people think of sort of five or six different dominant companies. Do we move to a world in which we've now got you know, 20 dominant companies and are a chunk of those European. And I think if if somebody, you know, was sitting there reviewing the DMA in 10 or 15 years' time, if, um, you know, GAFAT had extended now to to be 20 or different companies that were large, even if it still included the ones that are large today, but it also included some that are European, I think people would point to the DMA and say, it was the DMA, what did that? <laughs> Absent the DMA, yeah. we'd still be with just five or six and they'd all be American. Yeah, and so it's a that's a great point because what you're suggesting is that the mark it's not just about who is the biggest company, but how big the biggest company actually is, or the biggest companies actually are. If it's a Pareto lower world where where sort of twenty percent of the companies have eighty percent of the revenue and the consumers, or if it's a a situation in which five percent of the companies have a you know ninety five percent of of the revenue and of the users, and so you could imagine that being another measure that you would apply the degree to which the market is governed by a power law. And you would like to understand if the if the top companies are closer to each other or if, if there's still a concentration, a very heavy tail at the top. Yeah. So that's a, that's another good metric. I like that. Yeah. And, and I think so, we should say... So, oh, this is, this we should is one be, definitely yeah. just plan out that date and come back and, and check it out. Oh, yeah. We'll submit. <laughs> we, I, I remember back in 2022... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Oh, bugger. Yes. <laughs> the empire's all gone. Can we, can we put this in a format where it'll degrade over time? And we're, we're fine. I, I really hope we will. I mean, I think plausible deniability over time is one of the best things that have, have emerged from, from usual forgetting. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Well, so that brings us to a close. Uh, we will certainly come back to the DMA, I think, and about specific provisions, specifically the implementation, I think, will be super interesting to track over time. But in the meantime, you can find this podcast and many other uh, episodes of the podcast on your website, which is www.regulate.tech. And thank you so much for listening, and we hope to have you with us in our next episode.